Thank you very much. Can you all hear me? Okay. If you're here for the Grateful Dead concert, that's next week. So thank you all for coming out tonight. Uh, I'm a little overwhelmed by the number of people, so I will try and keep on track. So on the board here are a few words that, if you're of a certain age, will remind you of how you'd put these things together to a song. Three of these things are just like the other. One of these things just isn't the same. But actually, this is kind of a teaser, because this all explains how I got to be here talking about the Spanish Civil War. And you can ask me about that, if you can remember it, uh, in the question and answer period. But my goals for tonight are threefold. First, I want to talk a little bit about uh, how the Spanish Civil War came about and what it was, uh, keeping in mind that I'm going to do that in about two and a half minutes, not uh, 30 or 40 weeks. So it's going to be fairly succinct. The second is, why did it matter in 1936? What made the Spanish Civil War turn out to be what it was? And three, today, sitting here in 2017, what lessons can we learn from what happened in Spain just over 80 years ago? So I'm going to begin with three series of images. This is Madrid, April 14, 1931, the proclamation of the Second Spanish Republic. People celebrating in the streets in the Puerta del Sol, right under the, which one of these is this handy? The famous clock in the Puerta del Sol, where when you go to Madrid, you meet everybody. Uh, the second image, Madrid, May 15, 2011. Uh, a different kind of manifestation, a different kind of uh, gathering. This one also celebratory, but a huge attempt to wrest control of civil society back from a government that seemed to be going down the wrong track. And this one, this, these were taken just about a week ago, Barcelona and Madrid uh, demonstrations in favor of Catalan independence. And I think that's probably where I'm going to try and end up tonight and get into a lot of trouble. So I'll try and, 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 and say something. The last time I gave a lecture on the Spanish Civil War here in this venue, the last class of the course, 14 people raised their hands and they said, explain Catalonia. And I said, that's the next class. So, so let's see what our point of departure was. Is Helen Graham, distinguished British historian a number of years ago, in a little book called uh, A Precise History, A Concise History of the Spanish Civil War, called the Spanish Civil War a fratricidal war in Europe's backwater. Now, we know Spain's surrounded by water. Uh, it was backwards. And a civil war is always, to some sense, fratricidal. Today, Spain's still surrounded by water. Uh, is it a backwater? Is it fratricidal? I'll try and say something about that before we get to the end. Of course, this war, this fratricidal war in Europe's backwater quickly became something else, not because of what was going on in Spain, but what was going on in the world around it. The war 
got swept up into the forces of the left and the right and became something quite different. Uh, it galvanized the left and the right at a crucial time in modern history, the right uh, in an attempt to try out what they hoped would be techniques and to shore up a, a, a right-wing government in a part of the world where they needed one. The left rushed to the aid. Only two governments came to the aid of the Spanish Republic. One was the Soviet Union. Does anybody know what the other one was? Mexico, okay? Rosalind Cárdenas came to the aid of the Republic. Uh, all of the democracies, Western democracies, stayed on the sidelines for reasons we'll talk about in a little bit. Okay? Now, to understand how we get to that point, I always like to go back. You know, everybody says the, the song in the James Bond franchise says, nobody does it better. Well, in point of fact, nobody shows better the cause for modernity than Francisco de Goya y Lucientes. And this is grabado number 43 of the Caprichos. And if you can read up there what it says, it says, El sueño de la razón produce monstruos. The sleep of reason produces monsters. Goya was what they, what they called at that time an afrancesado, somebody who really loved the, uh, the Enlightenment and the French Revolution. And uh, at this particular point, he was trying to point out exactly how backward Spain was. That's what all of the caprichos were about. Simply because Spain, throughout the 19th century, underwent a very uneven path to modernity okay, for a variety of reasons that I'm going to explain on the next slide. In point of fact, uh, one distinguished historian philosopher, Eduardo Subirats, always talks about the insufficient enlightenment in Spain. The enlightenment just kind of never got over the hump in Spain. And this is why. Some years ago, I stole from some Spanish historian who I, whose name I thought was Manuel Olivares when I Googled it today, four concepts that I always use when I want to plot out how you would explain what goes on in Spain. The first of these is the tension between oligarchical forces, the military, the Catholic Church, the monarchy, uh, the nobility, later on uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the bankers, okay, and forces of liberalism, people who were attempting to, to work a way out so that the oligarchical forces didn't hold sway. Okay? Second, a tension between the attempts by liberals to move one inch forward and the reaction from the forces of the oligarchy to say, no, we can't possibly do that, and push everybody 40 steps backward. Third, from the beginning, what you have to understand is that Spain was unified very quickly. It was the first European country to be unified 
the unification was fairly artificial. And what was never resolved in this process of unification was how to deal with the fact that there were people in, on the peninsula who had a long tradition of independence, autonomy, and who spoke, had different cultures and different languages. This is something that, as you know, if you read the newspapers, has been yet, yet to be resolved. And the fourth is the great tension in Spain between traditional agrarian rural society and the rise of metropolis, the rise of cities, and what that tension produced. Back to April 1931. April 1931 is the moment of crisis in the Bourbon monarchy. It's not the only crisis of, in the Bourbon monarchy. There were crises in the Bourbon monarchy since the Bourbons took over dynastic rule in Spain, and they went all the way through, all the way through to the 19th century. The Spanish Civil War isn't actually the first Spanish Civil War. There were three Carlist Wars before the Spanish Civil War. So what happens on April 14, 1931, however, is that after elections, okay, the forces of the monarchy, the people who voted for the monarchy, outnumbered the people who voted for installing a republic, but the vote was so close that the king of Spain decided to take a holiday. So he left the country. He left the country without abdicating. He left the country probably thinking that this would get resolved fairly quickly and he'd be back. Okay? He actually never came back to Spain. Okay? And from that point on, Spain enters into its second period of Republican government. Only the second period of Republican government, which total, I think, two and four and six, eight years out of 150 years until we get to, uh, until we get back to the restoration of democracy in 1975. The Second Spanish Republic takes the place of the monarchy and begins a series of attempts to undertake a number of serious, long overdue reforms. As a matter of fact, they were so serious and so overdue that when the 1931 Constitution was written, okay, uh, if you compare the 1931 Constitution to the one that was written in 1938, excuse me, 1978, after Franco died, they're essentially the same document. What has changed is the period of time. So we're going to talk for a couple of minutes about making sense of the Spanish uh, Republic until July 18th, 1936, when there was either an alzamiento nacional, a national uprising, or a counter-revolution, or a coup, depending on what your political uh, affiliations are. Now, here's what we know about the Second Spanish Republic. It accomplished a lot, okay? All of the people who supported the Republic knew that they didn't want a monarchy. There was very, 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 very little agreement about 
the shape and the nature of democracy that was going to replace the monarchy. That became one of the problems. And the republic was always pulled, those forces of reform and reaction, oligarchy, liberalism, uh, centralism, regional autonomy, all of those pulled the republic back and forth for its six-year history. What they did accomplish was a series of uh, reforms institutionalized in the Constitution that only, in, only divided the country more, probably for good reasons, and also uh, inflamed the forces of the uh, oligarchy, oligarchical status quo. Among them were a reform in the middle uh, of the military. The Spanish military was way over-officered. Okay? Uh, Reform, agrarian reform, reforming the education system, reforming the electoral system, uh, making all this all state schools in Spain uh, lay schools and pulling away the, the uh, control of the Catholic Church. All of these caused a number of tensions, a number of uh, plots to begin to figure out how we can rid ourselves of the republic. Okay? The plot that took place on July 18, 1936, was concocted by a number of generals working in secret to overthrow the government in what they assumed would be a rapid coup and capitulation. So, Let's look for a moment what happens when the war starts. And we'll start on the side, I always like to start with the good guys. We'll start on the side of the legitimately elected government, which was now forced to defend itself. What we know is that, in point of fact, the republic had two great advantages. One, it was a legitimate government. Okay. Two, it held all of the Spanish resources. It held the country's gold reserves. And it had a number of military garrisons that were loyal to it. What the war became, however, was something quite different. Had this actually been a civil war, the Republic would have won. But because of what was going on in the world, remember, we're only a decade and a half, decade and a half, two, 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 uh, two decades away from World War I, okay? And we're on the cusp of World War II. And you have in Europe forces that are beginning to uh, make known their desires to uh, lay siege to Republican, mostly leftist uh, governments. Of course, the one thing I forgot to mention that's in between those two is, oh, by the way, there was a Russian Revolution. Okay? And uh, that played a fairly big role in, in, in the right's uh, desire to uh, quash any kind of left-wing uprising. What the war became was, very simply, uh, Germany and Italy pouring human 
and financial resources into Spain to prop up the nationalist cause and give them what they needed to win, mostly material, mostly uh, uh, technical support. If you can call the Luftwaffe technical support, that's, that's essentially what they got. Now, of course, you could say, but wait a minute, Spain's a democracy. Where's England? Where's France? Where's the United States? Uh, where was England? Where was France? Where was the United States at this particular time? That's what we're going to talk about uh, in, in a couple of minutes. So first of all, there are internal issues. And this is what they are. How do you find help if, the, if all of the governments, the uh, legitimately uh, constituted democracies, the forces of the Enlightenment say, oh, Tana, we're going we're to stay on the sidelines this time because we uh, are going to sign, uh, Hitler signed it too, and so did Mussolini, a non-intervention pact. So we're just going to stay on the sidelines and we're not going to intervene. And Hitler and Mussolini signed the pact and said, yeah, sure, OK. But the other governments didn't intervene for reasons that uh, I'm going to explain in a couple of minutes. So who came to the aid of the republic? Where could the republic get its aid? They got it from the, the Soviet Union okay, at a very, very high price. And they got it from Mexico. Uh, the Mexican aid, if you want to know about the Mexican aid, you want to know uh, what Mexico did for the Spanish Republic? Come and see the Mexican suitcase uh, on November 7th. That's, that, will, that, that can explain it much better than I can. And of course, there was this popular outpouring of support, the international brigades, all of whom came marching to the help of the Republic to a up to a certain point. Now, what happened is that you need to keep in mind that there were two forces going on uh, in Spain at this point. There, was the, there, were, the, there were those centrif centrifugal forces okay, that want uh, centrifugal, is outward or inward? Outward, OK. Centrifugal forces that wanted to pull the republic apart to, to actually have a revolution. And if you've read George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia, you understand what I'm talking about. This is why this all played out mostly in, in, in Catalonia, but in other areas as well. And there was, at the same time, the need to pull everything together and to be able to, to execute a war and to maintain a government. So these two forces became, over time, uh, exacerbatingly hard to uh, keep in tow as the republic was trying to keep the, the, the the nationalists out of Madrid, out of Barcelona, at the same time fight internal battles. There's a, a wonderful exchange between Gabriel Jackson and Noam Chomsky that talks about that, but that's another course. Okay? Now, on the other side, what's going on in the nationalist side? Franco, uh, who came to power somewhat accidentally, okay, he was not one of the four original generals who had, had uh, started the idea of a coup, okay? Once he begins to 
put power together, what he's got to figure out is, remember, we uh, you can talk about whatever you want, but the Spanish Civil War was actually a coup engineered by very conservative Catholic generals to reinstall an oligarchical system based on traditional rural values. Okay? What Franco had to do is figure out how do I manage all these people who I need, like the phalangists and the fascists and everybody else, but who I can't stand? How am I going to forge a government out of this? How do I manage the Catholic issue without them getting too much in the way? How do I unify everything in my zone? And the key to this is uh, a statement which was issued by uh, probably fairly, today, if he had a press secretary, he'd probably deny that he said it. But the uh, <laughs> General Kindelan at one point said, if you, give him, if you give Franco Spain, he will think it's his. They gave him Spain till the day he died, he thought it was his. So how do you win friends and influence people? And what do you do? What ethnic cleansing without ethnics means one very simple thing. Franco could have rushed through, captured Madrid. They were on, the, the nationalists were on the, ste the steps of Madrid since the end of 1936. He decided to fight a war of attrition, literally as a way to annihilate as many of his adversaries as possible. Okay? That's what I mean by ethnic cleansing without ethnics. Deciding who is Spanish or who is not, depending on who supports my ideology. Now, when we get to the international situation, why, remember I said, didn't the democracies intervene? Number one, above all, they were trying to avoid another war. They were dealing with the consequences of the Russian Revolution. And they were playing with this uh, Solomonic problem. Which is worse, fascism or communism? And leave it to a Shakespearean scholar to say this better than anybody. A Shakespearean scholar is A.P. Rouse, A.L. Rouse, who was at Oxford at the time, a member of a number of leftist groups, was in contact with, with all of those people who were running the Times, who were in the uh, Foreign Office, et cetera, et cetera. And Rouse wrote a very, very slim volume called Appeasement. And if you focus on the second paragraph, uh, why Britain did not heed the warning of Hitler, why they didn't understand Hitler, the second paragraph says it very, very well. In essence, they were anti-red and hamstrung by that. Now, in point of fact, what this means is, although Hitler was a threat, they were, the British Foreign Office was more afraid of communism than they were of 
Hitler. That was a huge mistake. We paid a huge price for that. But at that point, that was the thinking. And in point of fact, that's why, uh, for the longest time, Chamberlain tried to appease Hitler as a way of not having the Red Hordes uh, move eastward. And secondly, as a way of uh, trying to forestall the inevitable. Now, what I'm going to do now show you is six slides. And in these six slides, you'll be able to understand what happens in the Civil War militarily. So I'm going to ask you, as you look at these, uh, to watch the colors change, watch the red and the gray change, and look what happens around the red, the dot that says Madrid. This is July 1936, October 1936, October 1937, May 1938, and February 1939. So what you can see is that throughout the campaign, the nationalists were doing two things. They were staying on the doors of Madrid, okay, not taking the city yet. The government had long left. It went first to Valencia, and then to uh, Barcelona. But you can see that the battle was fought to separate the two zones that supported the Republic, basically the northeast and the area around Madrid. Over time, uh, it would be a war of attrition, and the nationalists would finally uh, When the Republic would surrender unconditionally, and Franco would be installed as the chief of state, and whatever title he chose to use as chief of state. Now, I want to talk a little bit about that group of people who came to the aid of the, uh, of the, uh, the Republic, the International Brigades. The International Brigades were, were formed of volunteers who came from all over the world. As a matter of fact, at some time, in 1970, I believe, I, no, 1970, uh, I was, no, 1969, excuse me, my, it's a long time ago. I was uh, in ROTC, and I had, was going to be commissioned as a second lieutenant in the military intelligence, so I had to get a top security clearance. So they handed me the sheaf of papers, and the papers said, have you been a member of any of these organizations. So I started at the top, International Workers' Party, and I got through to the end, and one of them said, Abraham Lincoln Brigades. So I looked at the guy while I was filling the forms out, and I said, Abraham Lincoln Brigades? And he turned to me and said, premature anti-fascists. So that's what the people who left the United States to fight in the Civil War were called, premature anti-fascists. And the International Brigades came rushing to the defense of the Republic and until they were told to go home because the Comintern wanted to unify the Republic under one military. But what we know about the lessons, when we're talking about the lessons of the Spanish Civil War, these are all things that came right out of the international brigades. Okay? Gender equality, no difference between men and women. This was also the case in the, in the Army of the Spanish Republic. You can see this if you see a movie called uh, 
Land and Freedom by Ken Wilk. Uh, tactics and consequences, special forces, all of these grew out of the Spanish Civil War. And once again, the role of women on the home front. Okay, we know Rosie the Riveter here in the United States. Some of our mothers were Rosie's the Riveters and worked uh, while their husbands were off at war. There were, of course, women who went off to war. This, and the same went, was true on the, on the fascist side and on the Republican side during the war. There were, there were women's institutions. On the Republican side, the women were in the militias. On the nationalist side, they stayed home. So let's go to 1975. November 20th, 1975, Franco dies. There's a transition to democracy. There's a new Spanish constitution. And there are general elections in 1982. The transition to democracy essentially ends in 1982. Why? Because for the first time since 1936, Spain elected a leftist government. The PSOE won the elections with an absolute majority that it held until 1990, I believe. So all of this is important to understand. Now, to keep in mind, was this transition to democracy, which at the time was called a miracle, was it a miracle or a problem? That is an issue that's still being debated today. And that issue has to de depends on if you understand the real nature of the political process. Democratic politics is, oh, we forgot that here in the United States, is always a politics of compromise. It's making the best decision that's possible at any given time, not digging your heels in and saying no as a point of departure. At the, in 1978, when Spain was writing the Constitution, all of the forces came together and said, we're going to forget the past. We're going, to, we're going to bracket the past and not think about it, and we're going to try and move forward. In hindsight, that was probably a really bad decision. And people today regret that that decision was made. However, that was the only way at that point to move forward. Remember, we had an American government that was perfectly willing to support another dictatorship in Spain, as they were supporting uh, military dictatorships all over Latin America. And then, in 2008, Spain passes the Law of Historical Memory. What's the Law of Historical Memory? It gave people the right to begin to exhume the mass graves and try and find out where, what had happened to their relatives, their parents, their grandparents. Once again, Mexican suitcase, all about the law of historical memory. Then let's fast forward to May 15, 2011. Without any political party supporting them, hundreds of thousands of people who met on the internet, decided once again to occupy the Puerta del Sol in Madrid. And they started a movement called the Indignados to express their disgust with how the government, how 
civil society was spiraling out of control, mostly caused by the latest political economic crisis of 2007, which hit Spain very, very badly for a number of reasons. So the question became, who does, this, who does the state serve? Are you for us or are you for vested interests? Once again, liberalism, oligarchy. The oligarchy, which changed colors, really never disappeared. So that was one of the major issues. People wanted, demanded that the government change. Was this a decline in civil society? Uh, yes, to the extent in which government became unresponsive to the needs of people at a time of crisis, uh, it was a big crisis in civil society. Now, the issue becomes, what can you do about that? And this is another one of those points at which decisions were made that, uh, in hindsight, were probably not a bad, probably not a good idea. A lot of people abstained from voting in the 2012 elections, and rather than 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 uh, making a change, they let the government of the right of Rajoy get into power, and things only became worse rather than better. That's my opinion. You can disagree with it. Okay. Uh, the question became, during this entire process, the persistence of cultural memory. How do people in 2000, after this crisis, how do they remember the past? How do they express the past? And who has the right to speak about the present and the past? And as one example, I'll make an aside. Uh, Recently, one of the things you get to do when you're a professor is you get to read books. So I read recently three novels by three distinguished Spanish novelists, all of which have to do with the Spanish Civil War. Falco by uh, Arturo Pérez Reverte on the recommendation of a very avid reader in the audience. Juan Madrid, an author that you probably never heard of, but who uh, is one of my favorites. Pedro Skedwetterman, another novel about the Spanish Civil War. And then Eduardo Mendoza, one of Spain's greatest novelists, Riña de Gatos, Madrid, 1936, another novel. Within five years, all of these novels, post-crisis, wrote about one thing, and they looked at history from a perspective of how Spain wound up getting screwed by the decisions of the democracies to not support the republic. That's interesting. So the question of who becomes, who gets to control the discourse of history, novelists control the imaginary, right? <laughs> the discourse of history revolves around such things as in the, in the dictionary of Spanish history that the Royal Academy of History wrote, should they call Franco a dictator or not? Could they use the word dictator rather than caudillo to, to describe Franco? Remember, we're 80 years past the Civil War. And we know that there was a change in the world. Okay? 
However, lessons learned, 2017, there are still people in the streets demonstrating for one of the rights that was first put into the Spanish Constitution in 1931, regional autonomy, and which was guaranteed in the Constitution of 78. But what was not guaranteed was the right to, in the, the way the Constitution was written, for one of the sections of Spain to decide it didn't want to be in Spain anymore. And that's the battle that's going on right now. However, in Spain today, is Spain still a backwater? Oh, probably never really was a backwater. It, certainly one of, it was certainly, up until about 10 years ago, one of the fastest growing economies in, in the world. And uh, is it fratricidal? I don't think I would call Spain fratricidal, uh, because fratricide means dividing into two, and I think there are way more than two Spains at the moment. Actually, from the perspective of millennials, I guess there are as many Spain, Spains as there are people under 30. That's the way I would put it. But regional autonomy and independence still is an issue. This raises several questions. The, the autonomy independence issue uh, is a problem of interpretation. Okay? So I'll begin with this interpretation. Okay? Uh, were there bad are there bad people on both sides? Were there bad people on both sides during the Spanish Civil War? Uh, it depends on what people you're talking about. If you're talking about governments, uh, there weren't bad people on both sides. Uh, if you're talking about individuals and personal beliefs and what they did in support of those beliefs, then you're probably right. But it's always defining, you know, you'll never get to the right answer unless you ask the right question. Okay? Now, that's that's a uh, reference to bridge, not to the president. Okay. Why does communism still trump uh, fascism? Because of the role of money economy, right? What moneyed economy? What capitalism cannot sustain is somebody trying to undo capitalism. Okay. And the other question that revolves around this as well is the issue of nationalism. What, what, my, what fuels most nationalist sentiment at the moment is anti-democratic, anti-egalitarian sentiment. So can you be a nationalist, or as some people say, an economic nationalist? and still maintain liberal values at the same time. That's what's going on uh, in Spain, okay? Because traditionally, the nationalist governments in, in the Basque Country and Catalonia, the, the traditional nationalist parties were rightist. So there are so many different issues that need to be played out, but if you look at the last two slides and what I've just presented here for you to chew on, 
not for me to make any decisions. You can see that what started in the Civil War uh, as a result of a process in Spain still is relevant today. So thank you all very much.